This episode is brought to you by the McDonald's one two three dollar menu. It's hard to have a friend who's a slow eater because when you finish your McChicken sandwich, watching them finish their McDouble cheeseburger and small fries can be excruciating until they notice you staring and offer up a few fries. That must be what friends are for. There's a deal for every moment on the McDonald's one two three dollar menu. Get a McChicken sandwich, McDouble cheeseburger, four piece chicken McNuggets, or small fries for just a few bucks. Prices and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any offer or combo meal. This episode is brought to you by HP Plus. In a world full of smart devices, isn't it about time your printer got smart too? Now printing is smart with HP Plus, and the HP Smart app is how it all happens. You can print from your phone with just a tap, no matter where you are, even from your garage slash home office slash yoga studio. Huh? That is smart. HP Plus. Learn more about smart printing at hp.com/smart. Hello and welcome to episode 151 of the Washed Up Emo podcast. I am Tom Mullen from washedupemo.com and today we welcome Adam Faller, drummer for the band Jawbreaker. A documentary was released a few years ago called Don't Break Down. Fun fact, Dan Didier, drummer for The Promise String, Maritime in Vermont, was the producer of the film. After seeing a screening of the film, I was fascinated with how much footage they had of Jawbreaker. I found out later from Dan that Adam was the one that had been saving everything. When I approached Adam to do the podcast a couple years ago, he said he would need to wait as they were just about to announce the reunion shows. Recently in Brooklyn, Adam and I finally sat down to talk. We discussed where these archival documentation thoughts started in his life and how his video store that he owned for years was feeding that same itch. We also discussed what it's like being a jawbreaker now and not being as neurotic about taking photos or saving the flyers. In the same light, Adam is fully realizing how important these things are later, and the love for his band is how everyone should think about their own band's legacy, big or small. Bonus, we talk about emo, and now Adam didn't hear them being called emo until after they broke up. Finally, a couple rad Nirvana stories about Adam seeing them for the first time and knowing that that first single was going to be Smells Like Teen Spirit. Thank you to the Patreon supporters out there. You make this place happen. And if you want to support, head on over to patreon.com slash washedupemo. This is episode 151 of the Washed Up Emo podcast with Adam Fallen of Jobber. Did you always document or archive or save things when you were growing up? I grew up moving a lot. Um, I lived in Hermosa Beach in California for the first six or seven years of my life. And then after that, it was, I was basically moving every two years. Wow. And I've not thought about this. I'm just thinking out loud right now. But maybe it's always been important to me to know exactly where I was at a certain age, in a certain grade, um, just to sort of track where I've been. And my mom has a great archive of photographs that I grew up um, kind of leafing through. And I mean, there were so many photographs. They weren't, in, they weren't chronologically laid out. They were just in this giant basket. Mm-hmm. And I remember whenever 
you know, the holidays would roll around and my sister would come back from school or whatever. I remember just sort of always going through the stuff and just kind of going, someday we should probably put this in order so we can remember, sort of track where we were yeah. in all these different places. We didn't, we weren't like army brats going state to state. It was just sort of, you know, we just changed neighborhoods. But, I, you know, I was like, I was like trouble, so I was. I went to a lot of schools and stuff like that. Not getting kicked out, but like I moved a lot, and yeah. I would switch schools. I'd be like, "This place isn't for me. This is bullshit. I gotta go somewhere else." So maybe, maybe I've always liked the idea of kind of tracking my, you know, the arc of my life and the different places I've lived. Um, and schools I've been to and friends that I've had. Maybe maybe that's it. I remember when I was in sixth grade, Chris Stewart, my sixth grade teacher, she was my very favorite teacher. She made us write an autobiography when we were 12 years old. Wow. And I remember really liking that process. Even though I'd only lived <laughs> 12 years, I thought it was really cool to sort of write about my life and where I'd been and catalog it and get it down on paper. Because you think now, could you think of even a paragraph to fill in tw- tw- 12 years? Like your mind, you probably had so much in your head and to document it then, like, like a journal. Right. Like you go somewhere, if I went to Ireland for a month, I have my journal. I, I wrote all this stuff every day. It was a poetry thing. I would have never, I would have remembered a tenth of that. Right. But because you had the photo, you wrote it down. Yeah. It's there. Yes. Yeah. And by, you know, I think like by the time I was 12 years old, I lived in like seven different houses or something, you know, like, so at the time I thought I had a lot going on. I was like, yeah, I've lived a life, (laughs) you know? Um, And then later on when I started keeping a journal, which was around, I really started in earnest keeping a journal um, when the band started becoming active, maybe a couple of years before that. But maybe it started in when I was at uh, NYU in 86 or something, and then through my years at UCLA and the band and working and stuff. And I remember thinking... When you started, what, was, what were you thinking? Like, I just want to write this out? I or? just knew that I'd forget what was going on in my life. And if I just wrote a couple of paragraphs and just named the places that I went, maybe it would sort of set off my memory and I could recall. Yeah. I don't know if I necessarily had an, an end goal, but I was an English major and I loved to write. And I thought maybe I could mine some of my experiences for a book one day or a screenplay or yeah. something. Um, never really had a concrete idea what I was going to do with it, but I remember Henry Rollins saying something that Joe Cole had said to him, um, which I think it was, I think the quote was something like, Joe Cole was, was um, encouraging Henry to keep a journal and to write everything down, and he said, because this is important. And I, that really stuck with me. And I started keeping a journal along the, those, sort of like those, um, those Rollins 
get in the van. Journals, yeah, just so where you just, where you just go, where you say like, this is where the band went today. This is how much the, the pr- promoter was cool. That someone spit on us. You know, the cops hassled us and made us pull out all the the amps from the van and you know tossed it for for drugs whatever but it could be five sentences but it's you could see it you could visualize it. yeah so i don't know why it's important for me to do that i i've kind of i've waned i my journals stopped just a few years ago i'd stopped doing it and i think maybe the advent of the camera on your phone probably calmed some of that down because now boom you could take a picture of where you've been or who you saw or what you did and that sort of meant that's kind of your your now you have a photo journal you have a document but i guess i just inherently it's important for me to document and i don't know where that comes from i don't know if it was necessarily taught to me except for chris stewart's class um and my mom's photo archives. I guess that's where it comes that's from. That's it. That's really cool. Yeah. And then, so you, about the band, were you were doing a journal, but then in the band, were you you did you have that same feeling of I gotta just document this? I I just thought I'd get a kick out of it later, you know. And it was as much to do with like the little blank books that I bought to fill in. And, you know, I would put ticket stubs in there or funny cartoons or drawings or photographs or just text about what was up. Um, I just thought it would be fun to look back at that someday when I was old or something to show my kids. Look what I did. This is where I went. And this is the silly ramblings of a young, you know, confused, angry silly person and they, but they could relate to it yeah yeah maybe and you know i don't know i say that i didn't have an end goal but maybe somewhere in the back of my mind i was deluded enough to think i should hang on to this stuff because one day someone's gonna give a shit besides me and my kids isn't that and interesting I to, and i started to believe it i started to manifest that and i thought and i think that might have been what driven me to work so hard with my, you know, my cohorts with Blake and Chris at what we did. We had no business thinking that we were going to be taken seriously, that anyone would bother wanting to give us money to make a record, that they would come to see us play. But we really worked hard. We really wanted to be a good band. We wanted to be great. We weren't in it for like money and chicks at all. We wanted to be a great band and we worked our fucking asses off and we sucked (laughs) for a while until we sort of started getting it. Um, And when that started happening, I really did feel, I think something in the back of my mind was like, keep everything. Wow. Take pictures Write it all down. Video? 
videotape. But that's or, crazy back then that let everybody know out there you didn't. It's like your phone didn't do anything. You didn't even have a phone, so to have. Oh no! I would v- steal. I would steal uh, cameras from like big v- box stores and. But the VHS ones or the Hi Eight ones or the you the Hi Eight ones. Yeah, those weren't cheap. I remember investing in in in. It wasn't even Hi Eight. It was called Digital Eight. Those are my tapes. Oh right. And before that, Super Eight. Super. 8. I have Super Eight footage that like. Jeff Martin, a good friend of ours from a long time ago, who who really helped us out a lot in the old days, he was a documentarian like crazy. It's the guy we went to school with, and he was just rolling footage on wow. everything. And he he had Super Eight. He had one of those big ass VHS cameras that you have to like rest on your fucking yeah, yeah. shoulder. He was rolling a lot of that stuff. And there was always like one. There was always like one person at the show. That's what I remember. There's always was one rolling. kid that had the nice kid. camera, mm-hmm. and one kid that had the VHS. Yeah, and and when they would send me a, a copy of that, in into a box it went, and I'm thinking one of these days, maybe just for shits and giggles, because I also kind of minored in film at UCLA. One of these days, maybe I'll compile all this shit and just sort of tell this story in some way. So I kept everything. I mean, not compulsively. It wasn't very well organized. It was it just, oh, this tour ended. Here's all the lamp. Here's, here's the all, Here's the ticket stubs put I got. Into, here's the flyers. Yeah, put it into a box. Here's the posters box. Here's the flyers box. Here's all, my stack of journals. Here's all the tape, the live board tapes. Here's all of the VHS copies. Everything had a box, sort of. And people would probably it, reach out to you and say, hey, I taped the show. Yeah. Send it to me, please. I remember tape totally. trading. Totally. Yeah. And so I just took all that stuff and threw it in my basement. Um, and just there it sat for years through moves and, you know. And it finally, and it finally did come in handy because that weird thing happened where, you know, the, the band got more popular in the wake of our dismantling it. And and then I get a call from the guys who made the Minutemen movie, Keith and Tim, and they're like, let's make a movie. And I was like, well... Guess what I got. I have a lot of stuff, and they had to sift through. I do not envy those two guys <laughs> or Dan, but they had hours and hours and hours. They had enough for a series. Wow. Like, seriously. If any, if, if people gave a shit about this band that much, that HBO would want to give us, a, like, a seriously, it could have been a 10-part thing. Because it really catalogs everything from the, from the jump. Wow. From when we were uh, sophomores in 1986, practicing it in Sonic Youth's you know, space in New York and recording with Donnie Fury in the Lower East Side to moving to Los Angeles and playing Al's Bar and, uh, you know, Raji's. Do you think that if you... I think that if you didn't do that... To, you know, to, to Gilman and onward. Yeah. I don't think... If you didn't do that, I don't know if this... Would have happened. Oh, there's a piece of. I'm not saying you. I. Yes, anything can happen, but I. Yeah. I think like there's this. Just you kept it alive, and even if it was in that box, it was alive somehow. Right. 
and it was there. Yeah. I mean, I'm a control freak, right? <laughs> and when we, when our band broke up, I, I got all of our records back from whatever labels that they were on, and I put it on our imprint, Blackball Records, which is what was the imprint that we used for... The reissues, right? For the Whack and Blight EP initially. Oh, right, right. Right. So I took... I found... I got all of our indie stuff back. Um, the LPs, the full LPs, and all the comp tracks and stuff. I got all those tapes back, and kind of curated our catalog and then by extent like our legacy um on the black ball label imprint so in doing in doing that because i had all the stuff and i was in charge of remastering the records and reshooting the art and putting all this stuff out and getting back all of our music and putting all of those ducks in a row like I necessarily became, you know, the the point man. I was the point man for Jawbreaker, and then I got us a website, and then I got us a Facebook page, and then an Instagram, and a Selling Twitter, merch. and and yeah, a merch company to print our stuff and restart reprinting our shirts. So I did all of that stuff while that that was just my hobby. You know what I mean? I had a job. I had I was starting a family. Um, but in my downtime, I methodically kind of curated our legacy. I can say that. I'm not going to say I'm responsible for this but that's resurgence. That's all you need. But I mean, what, Things I mean it, was, it was part of it. What really, and Chris mentions this too sometimes. He says, you know, it was our absence that, you know, made all of those hearts grow fonder as well. You know what I mean? Our popularity after we broke up has could have as much to do with us being gone and no one hearing a peep um because really we're a cult we're kind of a cult thing we're not um we're not a huge band i think people i was just talking about this people think that that we were wildly popular and rich and and you know and we were not we were anything but um, so, it, it, you know, what I've done as kind of, you know, in a way I kind of got left holding the bag because I had all the stuff in my basement and rather than being the kind of person that could then hand that off to a label or another person, I'm not that guy. Like I got to do it myself. I have to, um, and not because... I mean, because I don't trust anyone. I don't trust anyone. No one's going to do it, but you guys. No one could be to can speak for me. Yeah. Um, and because we all remain friends, I had those guys. You know, they gave me their consent or whatever, their blessing to just have at it. You know, and um, so with that being empowered by that, knowing that I had all this stuff. I was like, well, here we go. Here goes nothing. Here comes a book. Someone wants to write a book. Cool. Let's make that happen. These guys want to make a movie. Um, Here's all the stuff I got. <laughs> I just, yeah, I just had, you know, just the, that, that guy, I guess. I mean, for an indie band, independent band, that's rare. 
You know, the is it? I, I yes. guess I don't know any better because yes. I don't really have. I thought there was always someone said that you know it's like a drummer thing because you're not you know agonizing writing all the all the music. Yeah. No, I mean it's, you, you're the guy that you know is doing that all that other stuff. I don't think anybody does it well. I work with major label artists and I work with independent artists, and when I ask these questions. It is never thought about it. I don't know. I might have something. It's over there anyway. Uh, but, you know, it, it it's not in the in the moment. And I think artists that are remembered today mm-hmm. are because people did some work and with you put some stuff in a box. Not everything wasn't, but that's not happening because everyone thinks it's on their phone. Right. But unfortunately, that's that's fleeting. That. Your drive could go. Your phone could crash. Your these sort of and it's it's not curated in that way. Right. It's more well, so that, yeah. But that, I think the the physical part that yeah. you guys were in. I think having the VHS, having photos, film. I think digital is amazing, and I've digitized stuff, everything. But I feel like that's a a thing people think. Oh well, I don't need a bunch of. I have a bunch of stuff in a box, but it's more of a you've got stuff in a drive too. And it's rare. Right. It is rare that a band or an artist gets it. Right. And that's what's going to happen in 30 years. Right. Well, it's funny. I mean, that, but having said that, it's also true that I don't know where people... I mean, I guess it was the original guys that shot this stuff, but a lot of our stuff started popping up on YouTube, and I wasn't putting it on there. These other people were that had been sending me these VHS copies. So... Like, we broke up in 96? Six, I think, yeah. And then, like, I remember, you know, when the majority of the people finally got on the internet and were, and YouTube happened. They had a chance to talk about it together. Yes, and and the chat, and before that, it was like the message chat boards, rooms yep. and, the, and the message boards. So, so people, you know, we were being whispered in those places, too. So that digital world also did con- contributed a lot, I think, to to keeping our thing going. But yeah, as a you know, I'm an analog person, so I like that stuff. It's something comforting to me about that those boxes down there, yeah. and I and I care about them. And um, you know, I'm still someone that I'm someone that still buys vinyl and. It takes up a huge part of my living room, and I have, you know, there's there's two turntables in my house like that. Yeah. Um, but that's funny. Yeah, I didn't. I never really knew. I just figured everyone was was doing it like that. Keeping. I just figured that every band had that one member who just was in charge of the shit. I'm like the one that had the the, the big enough basement or whatever, yeah. or the wherewithal or the or the heart to hang on to this. Because I think for how much content you need to push now, you know, within terms of you know the w- w- how much stuff you have to put out on all these networks to stay relevant, stay in the algorithm. Right. You need to have all this stuff to right. do that. Sure. I got more than enough. Yeah, because there could be a whole plan. I mean, I talk about this with some artists. I go, I could have a plan for you for twenty years. Yeah, 
And you might think that there's a kid 10 years from now that finds out about Jawbreaker. What happens? Where does he see on the YouTube page? What's happening on Instagram? Or the next thing that comes out. I want to make sure that they get the story, right story. Right. But, you know, I can't say that I I was... It was important to me. You know... So personally, you felt it. I wasn't hustling for the band to be relevant. Like I said... We were made relevant. Like, I didn't have anything to do with that. I, some the internet. Some people, it just happened. That, that just happened. And I like to think that that's due more in part to, like, we wrote good songs and we, we you know, we had longer legs maybe than certain bands that maybe people related to our stuff later. And then and subsequent generations of people could still relate to our stuff and it wasn't too put into a certain era or genre I mean, it's definitely a certain time and place in the way it was recorded or whatever but yeah. something about it i i like to believe was timeless yeah. and really i had nothing to do with our relevance and um and when i started hustling and started getting the website and doing the the record label i didn't you know i knew that sure we could make money at these things if we sell our own shirts we're certainly going to make more money than if i give it to somebody else and make a a royalty and i knew that if i put out my our records on my one man label i knew that we would probably still make about as much money selling less records now that we have a bigger cut of that pie so i wasn't i wasn't ignorant to these things but really the at the core of it was going back to that feeling of this is important. I want my stuff available in a tangible, tangible format that I like best. And I want it to always be in print and I want it to always be available. And the only way to do that is to have it in your control, to have it in your basement on your label. And no one could take that away from you. And the last piece of that puzzle was Dear You. And the best I could do was to license it for five years and to ironically pay the label. <laughs> That's so messed up. Yeah. <laughs> like a $10,000 advance. To get and you then to pay put it them out. La- that they weren't even going to do anything. Right. It was just languishing. It was not repressed. It was just languishing in their archive, and they weren't doing shit about it. So I was like, all right, well, if I can't buy it back from these people outright, the least I could do is to make it available on my own label for five years or whatever, and then who knows what will happen after that. Anyway, so that's that one record is the only missing piece of, of that puzzle. And it now that I'm saying it out loud, I sound like a fucking crazy person, like an OCD. Like, <laughs> Any other discussions with them about it? I mean, I, I hit them up all the time, and I'm like, I try to get people that I know in that industry to talk to someone on the inside, and they say it's just all, you know, it's going to go to their administration, and they're going to say no because they have a policy. They say things to me. I, I get messages back that say things like, we're not in the business of selling back catalog. We're in the business of, you know, owning, owning content. And now that most of that money coming in is via streaming, these companies have nothing to do but get it digitized, put it in the place, and just collect checks. Yeah, know? the more you get out there, the yeah. more market share, yeah. more money. Yeah, they're just 
I'm following him. Uh, that said, I did hear from a guy at Universal who is really excited about repressing Dear You on blue vinyl and making it really cool and special and doing a push for it. So, and that's and that's only ha- that's only happening because we got back together and and are selling tickets, you know. But that's cool. Yeah, that's all right. Whatever. Um, so in 2007, the documentary stuff started, right? The oh. guys reached out to you and said, let's get this going. The guys, the, the yeah. men stuff. Yeah. And they were, yes. And it took them a long time to finally get a cut because sadly Keith passed. Oh, um, right, right, right. He got, um, a t- I think it was a brain tumor or something, something, but he basically, you know, sort of got struck by lightning and, 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 and was taken from us far too soon um but but he but that said he was also you know it took however many years because he was really doing it as a labor of love he was doing it on his off time when he wasn't raising his children and working a job and living his own life Mm -hmm. and and similarly uh tim Irwin, who was shooting it and directing it that guy's got a real job he's got you know he shoots skate and snowboard stuff and is flying all over the world constantly. This is just out of love. And so again, yeah, yeah. it's going to take a minute. So it was, yeah, it was just sort of catcher and going through all the, it, yeah. the footage and stuff. It was catch as catch can. Like, I just sent them every single thing I had. I took a picture of every poster that was silk screened and I sent them flyers and I sent them stuff from my own photographs, like my archives. Um, yeah. And just, I, I might've even given them journals and stuff like or pieces of writing, you know, I just gave them everything. And then it took them a really long time to get it all together. And then when Keith passed, um, that's when Dan got in the picture, Dan from promise ring. Um, and he started, he took, he took on a huge role, sort of getting a, a really cohesive cut of the film and just doing all of the shit work that you have to do, licensing the, whatever he had to do yeah all that stuff's crazy it's totally nuts um and then so it finally came out like i think it was like more than 10 years since we had began wow i mean what i loved about it is it begun or began since we had begun started started let's just go with started i usually do that when i'm writing if i can't i just change the word i'm like fuck i can't figure out the right tense i'm horrible with tense i mean i think what's great about the doc in which I liked is that it's not a lot of talking heads. There's yes, it's, you know, Jessica's in there, you guys are in it, but it's not like every situation needs to have the Ken Burns pan and someone describing it. No, you have the video, you have the flyer, you have oh, the that's moment. One of my favorite things about it is how collaged it is because there's all those different formats. I think they use, there's like every format. There is Super 8, VHS, Betamax, fucking... High eight, but like talking about HD, the argument, even the talking head stuff. It took so long to make this movie. Oh, it went from it, SD to HD, yes, right? Yes, that's crazy. So you see almost every single format of film, and that's part of this story, this long arc. You just you can almost play it without sound and go like, oh shit, this is a long history that we're looking at right here. Yeah, from the eighties. So, that, so I love that. I love seeing. 
the aspect change. Oh, right, right, know? right. And then, you know, getting really grainy. Yeah, all of a sudden VHS it looks stuff. horrible. And then there's bars on the right and left because it's almost it's yeah. like a 4.3. Four, three. Three. Yeah. It's cool. I think that's one of the most charming things about the movie. But that's what... It, that's why it connected when I watched it. I'm like, oh my God, Adam had all this shit. This is I amazing. I and did. I think that's what made it. That's, again, if it was just talking heads and you had a couple flyers and maybe one video, you would have shown the same video from the same shot. Whatever the. I've seen those docs. They only have one video and they keep going to it and throughout right. the whole thing. And it totally. just. I, how do you tell that? You can't tell your band's story. If you just have that, and I think the the um, uh, it's also people sometimes don't know. You know, they don't write down what's on it, or they don't write things. Um, I can't speak to like my motivation. I just I, it was something I was kind of compelled to do. I love it. I don't. Uh, yeah, you know what I mean. I didn't know exactly the end game. I just thought maybe one day. Something will, will it'll yeah. be cool to have this stuff, either for myself or for my kids or for people that cared about our band. Um, when you had the video store hmm. in San Francisco, yeah, was that kind of the same thing of there's all these movies and things that people might not have known or um, this is a way to The share. reason why we stuck around for 20 one years or whatever. You had the shop for 21 years. From 97, I just sold it. That was a couple years ago, right? Or I re- think no. I, like last year oh, I sold wow. it. Wow. Um, wow, okay. That's funny. I never thought to tie these things in. But here we go. I knew that we were... The reason why we lasted so long, even though we started getting... We started losing people to... I think at first it was like probably... Um, cable TV and then like street then Netflix and streaming services on demand um, all that stuff yeah. um, the reason why we were one of the last video stores standing is because we looked at our store not like a video store but like a library so we wanted to have and we didn't but we want we strove we wanted to be like a library of great films and have all the stuff that you can't find on all those other place in all those other places. I mean, my other wish for our video store was that I wanted it to be like a cool place for, you know, people I knew that were artists and musicians and students. I wanted them to have a place that they could work and then go off and do their thing and then come back to with, without, you know, I wanted it to be that like a cool place for our community. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but besides that, we, yeah, we wanted to, you know, we weren't just pimping the newest, whatever movie, big blockbuster. Um, we wanted to have, you know, whatever, Chulis Fronteras or like, you know, deep tracks shit stuff you know from you know we had a great archive of foreign films so we had we had something there for everybody it was like a cult film you know we had everything listed by director we had um, a huge Hong Kong section we had a great documentary section Um, we had independent films truly independent films we had a section of films that were only available on VHS like that just didn't make the jump to digital. 
So we wanted to be an, an archive. And I never <laughs> You never thought about that? Really. I literally, when I, I, I said, oh my God, he's doing it again. Yeah. I mean, I think that's again the library what to have. What's wrong with me? No, I having the, what the having a documentary section, having those places for people to learn. I think it's it's. I think of it like the YouTube channel. People treat YouTube channels are just official content, and I think of that as the blockbuster movies. Like right. we're just gonna go there, and I'm not saying they have blockbuster movies, but as a band, you're just gonna have the official videos. But no, I wanna. I want to see that other world. I want to see what right. that guy watched, and then each no, of the. No, we, we were really. It was really fine tuned. But you it. could really learn about a, an art, like a, a director's influences, and then you could kind of just like you go down with bands. You could do the yes. same thing at that store. Right. Hey, I watched this on this documentary. What else did he do? Oh well, his other buddy did, and then yeah. you just go. Yeah, it was. Yeah, I mean, we had a section within the comedy section. We had like Mel Brooks, Albert Brooks. We had a section called like Reagan era teen exploitation. It was really <laughs> chopped up in there. It was it was rad. Um, you know, they come in and they go like towards the end. They come in and they go like, really, a video store, like. People would get towards the end of the video store. People would come in and take a picture of the video store rather than do a lap and rent a movie or buy something. They would come in and put well, it on their Instagram, on Instagram because bolts. look at this weird anomaly. What is this? You know, this palace of of obsolete media. So I did. That wasn't lost on me that I was in two industries that really dealt in obsolete media as digital started happening. Yep. But I would say, in both cases, I would say, sure, go listen to us on YouTube with you know MP3 quality music. But as fucked up as my ears are from playing drums for 40 years, even I can tell the difference between a vinyl record and an MP3. I can hear a difference between an MP3 and lossless digital. I didn't think I could, but I can. And the reason why I know that is because I did all that remastering for all these different formats. So if I can hear it, Anybody can hear it, but people don't know any better. No, they've got the Apple. They don't know any better. AirPods, whatever is free, phone. whatever yep. is free, whatever is convenient, and that's okay because not everybody has the money for yeah. a fucking record collection and a turntable, and that's cool. I'm glad. I'm in that way. I'm a populist. I want everyone to be able to hear us. But if you really want the real, if you really get into it, if you really like it enough, if you love it. There's there's other ways of of um, of hearing that stuff. Similarly with with film, you know, like um, you know when when everything went to DVD, not everything got bumped over. We lost things in that transition. We lost in that in that move to digital. We lost a bunch of stuff. In analog that I that I held on to necessarily because I knew someone was going to love it enough at some point to want to see it, and if that meant they had to, you know, go to the 
thrift store and go buy a a VHS player, that's how they're going to have to watch it. Or I think the digitizing of it, too. I, uh, people have sent me VHS tapes throughout the years, and I've digitized them because yeah. I want to make sure that if that tape fails or the tape breaks, we've got another yeah. copy, and that's the best quality that I can do it from, and is high, and then that's saved in a server. And But again, at some point, someone might want to look at that and i think from the movie side like they lose they've they're losing stuff from the old old era every day they go and open up a case and it's broken yep yeah and even when they go to digital it's like when they first went to dvds not all those transfers were great oh my god not all of them were a lot of them were fucking horrible and you're missing shit and the, the color is weird or they're chopping shit up um you know, I, I would see things. I would see DVDs that are, were supposed to be letterboxed, and they weren't. They were four three, and they were chopped up, wow. top to bottom. And it was like it looked worse than the video cassette that I had. Does, does that make yeah, sense? yeah? It totally makes sense. Because um, I'm just saying that without really thinking it through. No, I know what you bottom. mean. Anyway, so so you know when I went to Capitol Records and fucking absconded with the Beatles catalog in a really cool little uh, box set of um, CDs. Those weren't great. Those weren't great sounding because the technology has since gotten so much better that you can get a much better approximate. Every year you can get an even better approximation of the analog, but they're just chasing that analog. They're chasing that analog sound. You know what I mean? So it's ironic that, you know, they're just making us buy the same shit over and over again, basically. But it's interesting that really, if you just have your original record, that's probably going to be the coolest thing anyway. And it might might have some pops and skips in it, but... The warmness of it. It's going to be rad. It's going to be the raddest thing way of hearing it. That's cool. Anyway, um, but yeah, the video video store was definitely my other... Archivist, yeah, curator. kind of like, and it, yeah, just obsolete media place. Are you still doing it today? Are you still documenting? Are you still writing stuff down on these when the with the reunion and well, all the shows? Kind of. I mean, now that we, uh, it was great to bring. We we didn't um, bring her with on this trip, but our friend Chrissy Piper is great. Why do I know that name? Because she's got books out and she's shot every band That's that you've why. ever seen. Um, she's like, yeah, she's like one of those famous kind of punk rock photographers. Um, she lives in Los Angeles. So she, we brought her out, um, to just archive everything. I was just like, shoot everything. Shoot us at lunch. It's shoot us at practice. Just shoot everything. And so at the end of these little trips that we take, she just sends me all of the pictures she's like here it is yeah no it's rad and they're and they're beautiful too because she she i don't know what it is about her but she's she has that thing that decisive moment thing where she just knows when to push her the button not every not everybody knows that shit she's really busy right now though because she's a she's like a a BMX um she's ranked number 6 in her oh wow in her age uh division in in BMX riding so she's Busy. Like a, she she's a total shredder <laughs> well, so she's not you, with us on this yeah. on this one but but like i said kind of everyone's but you're got, conscious of it to do that i think some artists are conscious to bring someone on the road 
give us that stuff. But it's it. I think everybody's just. I, I say they think well, about I consider Fridays. This, I consider this a, a, in a way that as well. well the, I, I tell the artist that. I go, your interview today as a baby artist, brand new with me at my work, when I'm doing a podcast with them, and this is my day job, I tell them this is a different conversation than two years from now when maybe you just sold out you know, Irving Plaza. Right. And you're talking to me. For sure. Even though it's your same voice, but it's like you're going to have that... It's going to be different, and I think we have to get that moment because your interviews when you were, you know, a kid are yeah. fun to look back on because that totally. was in that moment. But you can't do that later, right? Right. Oh, when I was sixteen, right? No, you're well, that, an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, no, it's hilarious. <laughs> it's really funny too because like the documentary is us at a certain time of our life, and because it took ten years to make that documentary, by the time it came out, all three of us are different people completely, have different perspective on the the band's history our sentimentality is different about it it's like a totally different thing so it's when i watch i can almost watch that movie objectively because it's interesting that i'm watching someone who feels different about it than i do now it's a trip it's that's that moment you were 10 years ago in the moment right that's amazing yeah it's a it's a it's a real trip and I, and you can't get that again. That's what I keep telling people. You got to do it now. Right. It's we're breathing it. Right. Just like you right. having Chrissy with you. Like I tell people all the time about photos. Like what's more exciting, a live shot, the press photo, or you guys eating dinner? To us, I know what that answer is. The eating dinner is. one is yeah. because Blake's, you know, a certain way or looking at you a thing, and you can start to think about, you know, stories or yeah. think about what's happening in that moment. That's exciting. Totally. Yeah. And it's it's great too because I you know, I get my family shows up to these things and our friends from way back in the day. And um yeah, it's rad it's rad to have that. I I wish I wrote I wish I wrote more. I, I keep notes on my phone. Um but part of me deliberately uh, for these reunion shows I definitely was like, try to be in the moment. Try not to go crazy because there is so much documentation these days. Try not to be neurotic about getting it all down. Really try to breathe and try to be in the moment and to really enjoy it without fretting over getting it all down. Someone's going to get it down. Someone, don't worry about it. Someone's going to get the, don't, you don't have to write it all down. You're going to have all the emails that told you where you went and you know your tour itinerary. Yeah, in this day and age. They might, someone might write about it and then you might do a podcast. So I'm like, I'm, I'm letting back a little bit of the reins just to try to be more in the moment. Cause I, you know, I'm a, I could be, you know, I can get, I'm sort of nostalgic and sentimental and, and that's, you know, that's not always great, you know, yeah. like, that could be, that could be, that could be wear on your heart too, you know what I mean? So try to be right in the moment, you know, it, it, what, is it, what do they say? Like, um, anxiety is looking forward and depression is looking backwards. So try to be somewhere right in, in the sweet spot there. <laughs> I love that. So, you know, that's where I'm trying to, to be right now, but it's been great because yeah, having someone like Chrissy there and, and just having all of our you don't people have to worry. around, it's going to get 
there someone's going to get a picture of me and my kid hanging out backstage and that's going to be my favorite thing or like doing the set list with my daughter and you know whatever yeah it's cool i love it yeah what are your thoughts on the connection to the to the genre emo and i'll preface this by i never thought that and a lot of the emo bands liked you and everyone's told me otherwise that it i just never felt that i never thought that there was a connection what to the word emo the band jawbreaker oh us i don't i'm not sure they were really i don't think it was widely described as emo back when we were an active band it might have been they might have started saying it a little bit but i was looking at reviews like i looked up maximum rock like wasn't they didn't meant it said like punk it said rock it said they didn't even call us pop punk really alternative right wasn't that the i guess i don't remember i don't I, i remember when the the question when we were active we would get would would was are you a hardcore do you consider yourself a hardcore band or a punk rock band (laughs) I can and we kind of would have to be like, well, I think we're kind of more like a punk rock band because when I think of a hardcore band, I think of you're playing like 200 beats a minute plus, yeah, yeah. and you're, you know, you're blistering, and you know, I like a lot of that stuff, but you know, we were slower than that, and but we weren't like writing in like rock kind of blues based music so i don't know i guess we were like so then later you feel like that word got attached to it or people thought people would ask like what kind of band are you in i go we're just a three-piece punk band yeah you know it's bass guitars and drums when did you start seeing hearing emo later later after we were gone and then they'd say things like that we were like the godfathers of emo or whatever and not and not being really that familiar with emo in after we like i didn't really listen to a lot of that stuff um even in the late 90s i mean i heard some of it i was just talking about this i I heard some of it on the radio but like i didn't really i didn't understand it and some of it i really the stuff i did hear i didn't love it i didn't love all of it it was on the radio some of it was i thought was great what they were calling even some of it i I could didn't care like the mid-2000s and you're hearing it on the radio yeah yeah um or I guess they, they would have said that a lot of Blake's label mates when he was playing in Jets would, would call oh, right, that emo. Oh, right, for Tree, yeah. Um, but I didn't really know a lot of those bands. Like, I, I knew his band, I, and I love Jets, but... That's interesting. So, yeah, I, I, I never thought it. I was like, wait, there's a punk band. Yeah. I, and I also thought it's regional, too, because certain people had regional you know attached or they certain bands in certain regions would connect a different right way. i remember thinking back and the, when they started saying it and they started kind of like giving us the credit or blame for emo i remember thinking like well really i mean we were kind of like you know like rights of spring were before us and that's really early or yeah. um embrace yeah right or like sunny day or that kind of stuff. I, I thought that that really was. Now it sounds like I'm saying that they should take the credit or blame for emo, and both of those groups would say absolutely we we have nothing to do with that. Well, that's what's funny about the genre and why the website and all this stuff has been going on. It's 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 marginalized in press. It's joked on. Bands don't want to be attached to it. Right. Unless, well, now it's like now it's a now it's unless sort of they're a, making a fuckload of money. Right. Now it's like a punchline. Right. It's a punchline. Um, 
in the, in the same way that pop punk or skate punk or whatever was a punchline. Everything becomes a punchline when you get into these like these names. I was never more happy than when we started ending up in just the regular old alphabetized rock section <laughs> of of a record store. Those few that fucking still exist. Those five hey guys, record we're stores. In J on just the rock. Yeah, like Jawbox is right before us. J Church. I was fucking oh, stoked right there. Jawbox after. Yeah, yeah, I was stoked when I when that started happening. And they didn't work just like really. I mean, do they? I don't even know. If you go into a record store, I was actually. And God love you if you own a record store out there. But like, do they do that? Do they have like an emo section? Some do. Really? Wow. It would. I guess they might put us there. There's some. It's just funny. I never. I was like, I don't care. You know rock. what? Just spell my name right. That's all. That's all. Exactly. I, care about. I don't. I don't really just spell care. your last name. If right. it works for you, if you want to call us an emo band, fine. I like that answer. That's fine. I, like I don't that care. I'm not gonna. I'm not embarrassed. You know what I mean? <laughs> that's the thing. So many. I just want to go over to other places. I, when Dear Year came out, I, I remember like I can't remember if it was Source or the, one of one of those like hip hop magazines had a section that was like the best non hip hop record of of nineteen ninety five, and we made that list. No shit. And I was so stoked just to be in a just in, in a wider world. in, in a yeah. wider net, you know, just out there. You know, we're just a band. We're just we're doing the everyone's doing the same thing. Yeah. We're all just telling oh, I stories. I fucking love that. Aren't we? We're all just telling stories. Some so docu- you could shit on some emos. Just, some just document it better than others. Right. That's right. But That's then who will in. be remembered? And I think about this is that emo bands like Dan, the Promise Ring, he's got stuff in his basement. I want to make sure that they're doing stuff. But the bands that were on mainstream media, on the radio, have more things online and more things out there right. that will continue that word meaning because it was popular. If you ask 10 people in Times Square about emo is, they're going to say right. those bands you heard on the radio, not Promise Ring, not Rights of Spring. And they sh- but because they kind of hit that apex. Yeah. And that goes back to the band. You need to want to save and document. Right. And I think that's what, you know, I'm not saying emo related, but just that helped. Yeah. Continue the message. Well, you should, I mean, you should give a shit enough in your. With, if you're for, in a band, right? If you're you in give a band, shit I, I said this before. You you better your band best fucking be your favorite band, or otherwise, what are you doing there? You know, you better love this thing, or or what? Or what are you here for? What are you in it for? You know what I mean? You're not for real. Um. Yeah, yeah, I, I, whatever. The names, I, you just call it whatever the, whatever the hell you want it. But I, I know, I mean, I don't feel like a punchline. So go fuck yourself if you think I'm a punchline. It's just an easy thing that people, because they don't, they're misunderstanding of it or they think it's one thing and they just crack a joke. And it's just, that's been my whole. There's like, great, levity. I mean, there's great music in any kind of whatever genre. I just don't think there's another genre that gets shit on like that. Across the board. Sure. Well, I mean, a lot of music, I mean, you know, 90% of anything is going to be shit. And you really, you know, that's what's so fun about sifting through those, those sections at the, at the thrift stores. Finding something. Yeah. Um, 
Maybe I shouldn't say ninety. That sounds. That's a little bit. No, it's it's hard. That's to a find little bit. Stuff. C- that's a little bit cynical. But there's <laughs> great stuff everywhere. You know. What I, I mean? just think the open mind, like not thinking that my thing is it. Like there's well, a like history whole, before. Like just, right. There's a history before, and there's a history after. You will not be cool soon. I'm not cool. Right. So I ask kids that are younger than me, "What's happening? Or where's the everything comes show? back around yeah. though? Like, oh, exactly. What's a punchline now might come back around in a few years when just like style changes. You're right. It'll come back around, and people will appreciate it again. And go like, you know what? That's not a guilty pleasure for me anymore. I like that pop punk band. Yeah, yeah. I like that emo band. I like that, you know, silly whatever metal band or, yeah. or metal thing. Yeah, just we see it happen all the time. It's all it's totally it totally time. cyclical, and that everything comes around. And and if you know, who gives a shit if it's not popular? It's okay. Yeah, you know, I never had that thing. I never felt guilty. I when me and Blake came up in high school, you know, we were in Los Angeles in the early '80s, and we got to see a lot of cool stuff come through, but. You know, we didn't, we weren't like fucking too, we weren't like really hardline about what we were listening to. Like, I can't listen to that. Yeah. We were listening to fucking Led Zeppelin in the same, on the same mixtape as Black Flag and, and the Minutemen and, and, or think about SST Records. Like, oh, exactly. Like, remember that model when it was just like a, just a free for all and it had nothing to do with but what kind of music? But if you saw SST, you were like, it's got to be good. You were like, it's, it's going to be cool. It's Husker. It's the Meat Puppets, the Minutemen, Black Flag. Like, could you think of I know, five four, yeah, more four different? Like, different? <laughs> yeah. It's very cool. So yeah. I, and you know, and like my introduction to, to punk rock happened at the same time that, Hip hop music, or what we used to call rap music, I think, like mm-hmm. when it first came out, like the same year that I got the, you know, the Clash and the Ramones and the Pistols record, like Sugar Hill Gang and 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 Grandmaster Flash were blowing up my radio, and I was equally as stoked on, on all, that, all of yeah. that stuff. And I had my father's record collection. My dad had a great record collection. My dad was a David Bowie fan. No shit. Yeah. So I had like access and he had all the Stones and the Beatles. Wow. And the Who. And, and, uh, you know, Nilsson Records and whatever. You know what I mean? And, and Miles Davis. And, and like, so to me, it's like, it's just me. I, I, I was. P.S. I was, you know, I, I played music before I listened to punk, right? Like, I'm not a, I, I'm not a like a classically trained, but I played before I became was like into, into that kind of music stuff. Yeah, you know what I mean. So I, I, I'd like to think I had an open, a more open mind, and I like to think that people now with access to the internet and every single thing at your fingertips are going to be more open to. The good stuff. Yeah. Right. I remember when uh, Bleach came out, um, we listened to that. Um, but actually, before Bleach came out, I think I had the Sliver. Love seven, Buzz? The Sliver 7-inch? Yeah. Um, and we used to listen. I remember the very first time I heard that, I was working at Nano Warehouse in Santa Monica, Nana was like a, the punk What's rock. That? It's Nana was a punk rock store in Santa Monica where everyone went and got their Doc Martens and their studded. Where bracelet. was it on like Main Street? 
It was on, was it, it was Broadway, near Pete the Barber, the punk rock barber. Yeah. Okay. Right, near the, right near the old mall, which is the first shot of, um, of Fast Times at Ridgemont High. The very opening shot, if you just walk two blocks to the right, that's Nana. That's where Nana was. So they had a warehouse, and they were the only company in the United States that imported Doc Martin shoes, boots. No shoes. shit. And they had creepers and monkey boots and shit. So any punk rock store in America Bought was getting them. their shit from Nana Warehouse in Santa Monica. Wow. So we, so we, you know, everyone that worked there was like in a band or was like, like me. I worked with D from L7 and um, a couple, you know, JT and, and Cooksey, a couple of like Powell skaters worked there. And my bandmate, uh, Jason from Tri-State Killspree, and and another guy that worked there was uh, Kirk, who played the violin on Something in the Way on Nevermind. So Kirk was the person that, that introduced us to Nirvana's music. Wow. Because he and, L, and, and L7 were all pals. So I remember the very first time I heard... Um, Sliver, right? Is that the one I'm thinking I think about? so. I wish I had the internet. I'll go look it up. Um, but I, I remember hearing it at the warehouse, because we just blast wow. music at the warehouse while we were unloading these up. trucks. What a great job, by the way. It was so fun. It was great. We had a what, pra- we had a pra- I was in college. Like We had a practice space in the warehouse. My uh, Nancy and Paul, the owners, were like the fucking coolest people they knew my sister. I knew them when I was a little kid. Wow. Just like the coolest job. Like it was, they, they and did, what was your, what was it? It was just working. You were, it was a warehouse worker. Just warehouse work. Yeah. And they, you know, they had, they did profit sharing and they let us fucking look, blast music and like drink beer. It was unbelievable. It was a great job. Um, and Pam Moore, uh, KXLU DJ worked there. Everyone was like in doing something other than being, so it felt alive for sure. Yeah. And so, we got introduced to a lot of cool stuff and, and turned each other onto cool stuff, you know? That's amazing. Yeah, it's like that. I mean, the, the, the kid coming into work and saying, hey, I checked this out. It's really cool. I'm going to oh play my God. it. And then the kid that's not paying attention comes up, hey, what was that? And then... So Kirk, Kirk plays us that song. That must have been fucking nuts. And, and I remember like stopping what I was doing and, go, and like walking into the office where he worked. And I was like, what's that? And he was like, oh, it's these guys. And and I think he was just maybe even working. Maybe it was close to when he was working on playing, um, did I say violin? It's cello. Cello. He did, he, he did cello on something in the way. Um, and I think they'd already to, they had already toured with L7, so Dino knew those guys. And they had already, like our friend John, the guy that does our merch, was working at Rhino Records, so he had book them to play an in-store at Rhino Records in Westwood. So people around us knew about those guys. Um, but Kirk says, oh, you sh- tonight they're playing at um, Jabberjaw on Pico, which was like a the great, low, a like great place to play. Yeah. Shows while they were recording Nevermind. So me and Blake, Blake worked at the, at the, at the warehouse too for a while. Um, so we got to go to that secret show, that that kind of storied 
yeah. jabber job Holy held shit. by 200 people or something. And like Iggy Pop showed up and Corny Love was there screaming at people or something. <laughs> I, I can't remember the stories, but <laughs> it was like some so you went. funny. Yeah, we went and saw him. And that was the first time I'd seen him. And, and we got to see him at jabber job. What did you from, like? Were you like... That's was, gonna. That's that. That was a cool show. I'll I'll see you tomorrow, Blake. Or was it? Holy shit! That was insane. We on the way out. I remember we both said that one that sounds like the Pixies. <laughs> that one with like the Pixies riff at the beginning. <laughs> I'll bet you that's gonna be huge. Wow. So I feel like we had that. We had that one pegged. You had some like Teen Spirit single. Pegged. We did for sure. Now I remember saying that out loud with Blake. Um, wow. To Blake. Or maybe he said it, but we both agreed. We were both like, oh, yeah, that's the one. That's definitely. Wow. <laughs> that's, the one. Um, that's amazing. That's my little Nirvana story, I guess. I love it. But like, that. we weren't, even though we were sort of in the same wheelhouse, those guys, even at that point, to us, were rock stars. They had a record out. Bleach was already out. Yeah, Sub Pop. Those guys already had like a single of the month at Sub Pop. Those guys are rock stars. You know what I mean? We <laughs> felt like, the month we, pop, felt like we were nowhere. They were in a different world than we were. We were, you know, we were some other thing. So when we got asked to go on tour with them, we were like over the moon because we'd already been fans. We felt that was very validating. Those guys couldn't have been cooler. Like it was. What year was that? In utero. Oh, in utero, right. Okay, 94. Nine, no, I think it was 93. Oh, 93, 93. I think it was 93. And we were playing places that were bigger than anywhere we'd ever fucking seen. It was insane. Like, we were playing at big sheds and hockey arenas and, like, you know, like, it was nuts. Um, and Kurt was super, you know, he was great. Super sweet. Asked us, like, are you going to play Bivouac tonight? Like, he knew the songs. That's and, fucking rad. And he was sitting right. <laughs> he was sitting on the side stage when we walked off after our first show together in Albuquerque and just kind of giving us, like, the thumbs up, saying, like, yeah, you totally went over. Don't worry about it. You know? Wow. It's awesome. It was, yeah, it was it was really cool. Um, but, yeah. That's Kurt, beautiful. Yeah, it was, it was super cool. And that's, like... It was ironically that was also like right or not ironically that was kind of like when we started taking shit from the community about like the, the big being sellouts and oh you went on tour with the big corporate band we're that's like, crazy we're like yeah you're goddamn right we went on tour and with now the it's like band. only if it's almost like the timing part again like if that had happened five years later no one would have said a word sure yeah 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 they wouldn't have cared. They, they, people care. They, they were very protective of their scene, and I'm, you know, as as good as it feels not to, you know, be burdened by that. Um, nowadays, uh, I, I still respect that. We're, you know, that's where we came from, and people yeah. had fucking rules, and it's like <laughs> they stuck by them, and they, you know, they got mad if you if you fucked around. Yeah. And I get, I get it. And I thought it was cool to come from such a principled scene for sure. And we just, you know, we left it, but we still thought we'd take some you of the part. Us. Like you leaving it, you're still like, you could, I could tell with Kurt that he had was into punk rock and like, you could just yeah. tell that it like shows like yeah. you'd watch live shows. Like just it, he didn't start listening to, or not start, he could have, but he got the punk scene. Oh, for and sure. And understood, and you could see Did it you watch channeling. the docu- Did you watch that documentary? 
The Which one? one? That, the one that Brett Morgan made, Montage of... Yes. Back. What did you make of that? I liked it. It kind of looked like he felt burdened and 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 put upon by his fame. To me, it just looked like he was like not into it. Like it wasn't supposed to get that big that fast. Yeah. He and and the you know the poor guy suffered. Yeah. From by that. Um, yeah, I mean, I read. I mean, oh God, I think I've read every book or whatever Azarad's book or the other one. The um, the guy from the UK, his, it's just, it's and I don't claim any, I, I have no proximity to, yeah, I mean, yeah. we toured with the Foo Fighters a couple of times and those guys couldn't have been nicer, but you know, I don't know those guys personally, but still, you know, that was they, my impression of being yeah. around them for the brief time that we were there. Yeah, that, I get it. That he, that he just didn't seem, he just seemed like he was in it for the right reasons, which was like, this is my outlet. This is my art and take it or leave it. But, everyone took it and that might have weighed heavily on that guy that's that was my impression i think that's really well said yeah yeah i love that because it's the i'm making this art i get to say what i want and then there's all these people wanting to take and take and yeah. it seem to be off of what the message yeah it's interesting well it's also it's a pretty it's a pretty common narrative in a lot of art too of, of when that happens you know it gets hot and everybody wants it. Yeah, and then you and and then you change or you don't want to change. And but so then people want people just want right your X record. Sick. Yeah, and your heart's sick about it, and it sucks. Give me another smells like teen spirit. Give me another come yeah, as you are. Totally, it's like or it's give me thing. another dear you. Yeah, it's a trope, right? It's why we got signed. It's like, give us another Green Day Dookie. Give us another Nevermind. Well try as we might yeah that might not happen dude <laughs> but then years later you can have a doc you can come back and yeah and it, does, you, it feels good it feels good that people appreciate it uh, you know we we joke and shit like well like blake will say funny things like where the fuck were you people when we needed you there's too much uh, some of those spots have too much power maybe but then something but always that's proven wrong because there'll be some anomaly that comes out of nowhere some someone'll put a song out on fucking YouTube and just it explodes You're right. in there you know then it didn't even need it didn't yeah, need that it's 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 a, it's a weird thing or and then the, there was, the public decided not somebody else right said. or else there or else there's blowback against pitchfork for being too specific yeah. with their tastes or something and then a new group of people again that's that's a pretty big site, and I know a lot of people go through and they change, they move from there, and the editor is there one, and then they go over to work at MTV or, or yeah. whatever it is, whatever. Yeah, everybody's moving around. Yeah, everyone's kind like of, the labels. <laughs> totally. So maybe the new reviewer, when when twenty four hour revenge therapy comes out, he's like, actually, it's fucking awesome. I didn't hate that, and then gives it a, a good review. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. It's funny. <laughs> Quickly, I was going to tell you when um, when they started making the movie. Uh, I have all of our our two inch analog master tapes, and I also have the quarter inch mixed down reels that have been edited that are then going to become records or tapes or whatever mm-hmm. CDs. So I have all that stuff except for I don't have the Dear You masters. I don't have those masters, and when. They started to um, put the movie together. I wanted to get... We have instrumental mixes of all the Dear You songs. They do that in case you're going to play on television or something and you could just mine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they have 
all of the mixes but without vocals. Um, so I thought it might be fun to use some of that music in the movie. And I was like, I don't have the masters. And I asked Keith and Tim, who were making the documentary, can you go and find those masters for me? So they get a hold of Universal. And apparently, there's like a giant mountain in... Iron Mountain. Colorado. Is it in Colorado? Uh, It's Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, where all of the fucking analog tapes go like it's a bunker. No, it's armed guards. Like it's post-apocalyptic. Like that's where... Like when you're hiding from the zombies, that's where, that's you go. where you're going to go. Our tapes, your tapes are safe if there's a zombie apocalypse. Our tapes are in that place. And I was like, holy shit, really? And they said, yeah. And, I, and we had to sign some forms and they got the They tapes, go get it. They digitized them for us. And they sent me back a hard drive. I don't have the analog stems of or whatever you call them. For Dear You, but I have them digitally on a hard drive along with all of the instrumental mix downs. Um, and it was just that, that, I, that idea of that archive in deep, burrowed in the, the base of some big mountain in Pennsylvania was pretty intriguing to yeah. me. Now, that's some serious f- fucking archiving right there. Like, what are they hanging on to that for? Just in case of what... like. It's safe from well, it's radiation. Like the, well, it's the same thing in flooding. What is it, Finland. Who's the one that has all the seeds? There's a Scandinavian country yes, that yes. has all the seeds. You're right. You're right. Just in it, case. Just in case. Right. We fuck up. So when the sea levels rise and global warming has ruined this planet, if millions of years from now, you know, somehow the human race fights back. They're going to find Dear You. They can enjoy. (laughs) (laughs) And they're going to be like, there's this great doc sitting right next door to this. This is cool. It's on a DVD. We don't have that anymore. We're going to have to transfer it to our brain. Like, there's going to be some Does that mean that they also, in that bunker, do you think that they have all the machines that are going to play those things? Yes. They have to, right? Yes. They have to have every single kind of format, probably. Warner has that, too. Like I've seen it all. Like there's a there's the there's rooms and there's experts that they do other, but there's literally the the one for the the two inch tape. There's the one for the older one, and it's all connected to computers and because they're constantly digitizing. If you're ever in LA, that's so important. That's how important it is for them to be selling these things is that they're protecting them with that kind of security yeah. or just. But I think they're also respecting the artists. Like that's the this is it. Right. That's what they put down. That's important. We have to protect it. That's cool. When we when we visited Warner's, when we were thinking about signing, we went and had a meeting with with um, Lenny Warnaker, and um, it was really cool. And in was, L.A. Yeah, on that lot, um, he had a really cool uh, stack of records, and it was every record I think that he had put out, that Warner had put out since he started, since he was there. So it was just like wow, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of records. It was I was like, I just kept on staring at it the whole time. <laughs> He's like, "Well, what do you guys want to do with your?" You know, just kind of staring at it. Like, <laughs> like I want your records. <laughs> pretty rad. Sometimes when I'm driving on the road at night, I see the two headlights coming toward me fast. I just suddenly impulse to turn the wheel, head on, and keep going. 
Rising out of the flying gasoline. 